on the property experience, our hosts Zarko Jokic and Anna Porter will take you behind the curtain of the property market Australia-wide. Welcome to the property experience. Today we have Tuan from Duotax and Steve from Suburbanite and I am your host Anna Porter. We're going to be talking about is your investment property becoming a money pit, how to minimise expenses, increase income and add to your bottom line. Welcome, Tuan. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having us, Anna. I'm going to start with you. I want to know a little bit about your business and a little bit about Tuan, how you got into doing what you're doing and, and your background. Sure. More than happy to share that, Anna. Uh, so I guess for myself, uh, it was a journey that started uh, almost about six years ago um, now. Uh, and that started as a property investor prior to starting up a quantity surveying firm that specializes in doing tax depreciation schedules uh, to help... Um, property investors maximise uh, cash flow using the depreciation um, tool that the ATO allows. Um, I, I was a property investor myself and um, buying a property in southwest of Sydney, I was then able to uh, meet an accountant uh, that was able to um, educate me about the, the benefits of property and that meant uh, claiming depreciation as a tax deduction. So having long gone down that road, uh, I was then able to experience what it was like to have a quantity surveyor come around to my place and assess my place for um, rental deductions, which is uh, specifically depreciation on plant and equipment. And from there, I saw the light. I, I, I thought it was a great idea, like you're selling a service that would help people save thousands of dollars. In the first year, I could claim depreciation it was a $16,000 tax deduction for myself. And I thought, well, other people should be educated about this because there were a lot of people around me, my friends and family that didn't know about this. So I met my passion to uh, educate more people about this exact tool. Absolutely. And I remember, you know, for full disclosure, I've known you since you started the business back yeah. in the day. And um, I only really knew about tax depreciation and, and, and that side of things, quantity surveying, uh, because I used to be a property valuer and we had a QS division at, at one of our the bigger firms I worked at. So when our clients would buy an investment property, for me it was an absolute no-brainer that they should be getting a, a QS report to get the best appreciation. So obviously we worked with your firm pretty pretty early on because, it, you know, it's just free money. <laughs> Why wouldn't you do it, really? It's, it made sense. Steve, tell me a little bit about uh, your role and your background and what you do these days. Yeah, so uh, my background, I'm a structural engineer, but... Uh, much like Tuan, I got into property uh, about 2012 and grew my portfolio from there. Um, since then, got into the property space as a buyer's agent um, and now focusing primarily on commercial investing. So I help clients buy a commercial property, do all the due diligence for them and things like that. Um, yeah, and I've got a book coming out on commercial property investing in a couple of weeks' time. Um, yeah, and join the Suburbanite team. Looking forward to it. Fantastic. It's great to have you around. So I'm going to start with you, Steve, since I'm already talking to you. What are some of the more common costs in the commercial space that can erode an investor's return? We hear about this all the time, people saying their property can be a money pit. What makes it a money pit? The, the first big one with commercial is obviously vacancy. So if you buy an incorrect commercial property and it sits there vacant for a long time, not having any income from the property, plus paying body corporate and insurances and things like that, obviously that's going to um, take, take away from your bottom line. Um, the other one is actually just generally like incentives with the tenant. So because it's a bit more of an unregulated space, um, a lot of the times there's more negotiations that go on in terms of I know, quiet periods. Every business seems to cry poor even if they don't have it. Um, so there's a constant negotiation of trying to make, basically keep them on the lease. 
Yeah, that's really interesting because I think people might have a, a preconception that if there's a lease, there's a lease and that's job done and they can sit back and take the money in for three or four or five years. Yeah, you, you can play hardball and say that, but I always want my tenants to say long term. So if they are financially struggling, you try to work with them. Um, there's things you can do to benefit yourself though, obviously, as well. So if they're struggling, you can give them a rental concession for a while, but then extend their lease by a couple of years or take away from um, rental increases or something like that. And this is the environment now where this is coming right to the boiling point where these you know, these negotiations are happening every day, probably more so than ever. Is that is that something yeah, you're seeing? Yeah, exactly. And it just depends on the type of business as well. So like one of my commercials, I've got a cafe up in Brisbane, um, obviously had a couple of hard months for the start of COVID, um, but I've just extended his lease by a couple more years and now he's actually said business is better than before. It's just literally doubled. Fantastic. I'll come to you in one moment, Twan, with the same question, but I do want to just drill into that vacancy comment. So Vacancy is obviously a big way to erode um, your your revenue and your position as an investor. Uh, in commercial, how do you get around that? Is there any way to avoid vacancy or is it just part of the process? It's going to come down to what type of commercial you're buying and what the risk profile of that is um, and the versatility of the commercial as well. So something like a, a warehouse, for instance, that has a lot more uses than an office space in a tower. Like you could be a, a car mechanic, it could be a wholesaler, distributor, fabricator, storage, um, and there's a lot more ways to get comfort in the numbers for something like that. So you can look at other warehouses in the same complex, find out how long they went vacant for, find out what types of tenants are going in there, the mix of tenants. Um, so you can mitigate it, but there's a lot more work in terms of due diligence to find that. It's it's not as simple as residential going on a website and finding what a vacancy rate is. There's a lot more like work. Sounds like it's a really important piece of the puzzle. I think there's a whole podcast in that, so we'll come back to that another day. Uh, Tuan, talk to me about things that erode the revenue for investors and, and what costs that you know might pop up that aren't expected. Yeah, I, um, I'm going to have to second uh, Steve on that because I personally know firsthand uh, we've moved out of an office uh, recently to move into a, a bigger office and that meant that the old office had to be uh, tenanted. Uh, we had to find tenants, and that was vacant for over six months. So I know firsthand that when it comes to buying property, uh, especially in commercial properties, that finding the right property at the right time is critical. Um, for me, if I had to invest in that commercial type space, I'd be doing very similar stuff as well, um, and looking at for things like uh, that that would be more suitable to this um, time, and, and that might be places that are storage facilities and whatnot. Um, very versatile type properties. Um, a couple of other things that I sort of mentioned, uh, I think that my clients go um, sort of come across are uh, uh, termite infected spaces, um, places where they haven't been you know properly um, surveyed or, or inspected prior to inspection. I think um, the big purchase. one there that we said, it's a great point, is that not even just prior to, you cannot have termites the day you buy it, but if you do nothing for two years, you can get termites. So that ongoing, if we have our termite inspector come out annually, and do ongoing maintenance quarterly with our properties. We are on the bush, but you can't just expect your tenant to ring in and say, I think we've got termites, because how are they going to know? <laughs> and even if they see a sign, they're probably not going to either know what it is or bother reporting it to you because if it doesn't affect them. Yeah, and it certainly becomes your problem. So definitely something to be uh, proactive about uh, pre-purchase, but also whilst owning the home. I think that's a really good uh, point. The other point I think Steve has already mentioned is uh, having a negatively geared property, uh, especially in this time where job instability might be a thing, depending on the uh, your industry you're in. Um, that could really drive down uh, the cost of, uh, of, of owning a property. And so something to think about. And also uh, structural integrity of a home. 
Uh, we've seen homes that come down, uh, they've had to vacate or they've had tenants there without tenants there for 12 months. And that could be a deal breaker to, to really run down the cost of owning an investment property. Yeah, that sounds like a biggie. It sounds like someone could get themselves really financially unstuck with some of those things. There's, there's a full spectrum of those as well. You've got like the roof and then you've got foundations and you've got the structure. Then you can go down to just small renovations and maintenance and ovens breaking down and things like that. So, yeah, you just, you've got to look at what return you're trying to get versus what outgoings you're going to have. Yeah, we came across one recently, which was a bit out of the box, where it was a, a new property and we buy established property for clients. So we're really big on that. But this was a new property um, that, that we had a client looking at. And what had actually happened was the um, the last trade to come through um, did the concreting of the driveways and pushed it all in the stormwater, like the, all the off-run of concrete into the stormwater. And, you know, all the pest plumbing building inspections done prior, it wasn't until tenants moved in that the, the sewer started to back up because all this concrete set and over, when it was getting used, then the sewer started to fail and the stormwater failed and it was a fairly significant expense to fix it. They were getting quotes around the $20,000 mark to actually fix this problem. Um, and the builder didn't want to come to the party because it wasn't his trade. The owner of the property, who is the developer, got their own trade in at the end to do that last piece of work. So then it was a matter of, you know, we had to work with this client to hunt down that tradesman, get that sorted so they didn't end up being significantly out of pocket. Mm. But that's some of the challenges with new builds is you just don't know what you're getting until you're in it, until it has some wear and tear on it. Even new properties can have these challenges. So that's why we tend to steer well clear of them, to be honest. Um, all right, let's go back to, uh, to you, Tuan, for a second. I want to talk about how a quantity surveyor, um, tax depreciation schedules, which is what you do every day, how can this help put money back in investors' pockets? So effectively, when you're buying an investment property, it's made up of two parts, the acquisition of the cost of land and also the acquisition of the cost of the building. Now, within the building itself, uh, we can break down the cost of that building into two assets, which is the plant equipment and the building itself. Now, the ATO will let you claim on both aspects of uh, the depreciation on both aspects, that's the building and also plant equipment, being things like your oven, range hood, pieces of carpet, air conditioning, anything generally that's motorised can be claimed uh, as a, a, through depreciation. Now, the whole idea is for us to be able to claim as much as we can. So by pulling in things like your oven and range hood, these type of assets generally depreciate a lot faster than the building itself. Uh, the ATO will allow depreciation of the building over 40 years. Well, typically on an air con or a piece of carpet, we could claim those over 7 to 12 years. So if we can pull in those type of assets in depreciation, we're generally going to accelerate the amount of depreciation and claim back. And that means, for example, if you've got a $100,000 building, we're claiming $2,500 tax deduction on the building itself per year. But then if you've got things like air con, range hood, uh, carpets, they might claim something like four to five thousand dollars in the first year alone. So all of all of a sudden, from two and a half thousand dollars tax deduction, we've got now six to seven thousand dollars tax deduction just by including in plant and equipment. Um, so that's the benefit of having a tax depreciation schedule done. And how long do they last for? When you they do report? last for forty years, and they're generated just once in for, at the beginning of the, the life of the property. And roughly, how much does that report cost? Five hundred and fifty dollars generally. Yeah. Like I said, it's a no-brainer, right? It's a, it's no a no-brainer. I want to drill into some changes though quickly in the legislation. So, uh, once upon a time, you could claim. Um, quite significantly on established property mm. and then there's some changes came through and then there's a focus put on new property. Where does that sit now? If I buy, if I buy a 10 or 15-year-old property, should yeah. I get a quantity surveyor's report done on it? 
The general rule with the 2017 budget legislation uh, that changed the, the way we can depreciate is that anything that's secondhand, so that's plant and equipment that's secondhand, we can no longer claim depreciation on those assets unless we buy them brand new from a retailer and install them ourselves, or we do a major renovation. So if we do a major renovation on an old property, we can claim depreciation on all plant and equipment, even if it's not installed by us, but installed by a builder or if it was installed by a previously owned property, uh, um, uh, owner of the property. So that means if you've gone to a property, you've bought up something that's substantially renovated, you can still claim all the depreciation. But if you've got a property that's existing, you do need a receipt uh, to claim the depreciation on that brand new asset. So that's the biggest different, difference, but we do still need to uh, get a quantity surveyor's report because the building itself is still depreciable as long as it's built after 1987. Right, so basically if I'm an investor, if I own a property that was built after 1987, it's worth getting it done. If I've got a property that's been significantly renovated, even prior to me owning it, it's worth getting it done. Or if I add any new items, like I decide to update the bathroom or update the appliances in the kitchen, I can then start that again, that depreciation on those items. Yep. So that would be most people buying most properties and obviously certainly. brand new properties certainly. Certainly so. Done. That's exactly right. Fantastic. Uh, so, Steve, I'm going to throw to you. I want to find out your thoughts on ways that investors can increase their revenue or their position, financial position with investment properties when it comes to commercial. Uh, commercial, that's that's probably another podcast as well. So <laughs> um, increasing revenue streams can be done multiple ways with commercial. So firstly, what is the commercial? Is it a retail? Is it an office space? Is it industrial? Um, they're all going to have value types ads. Um, are they a freestanding building? Then that's going to have different types of value ads. Um, but some of the usual ones are like um, one of my properties. Um, I've got a big car park out the back of it. So I actually rent six of the car parks out to commuters. And they give me $30 a week each. So that's a nice little increase in cash flow. Um, there's Clever. things, just multiple income streams. So ATM machines. Um, I've had clients where we put telecommunications on top of the building, advertising space. Um, getting multiple tenants. So you might have a large space where the current tenant's only using 50% of the space. Um, you can actually sub sublet that out and get another, another income that way. So just, just trying to get multiple streams of income off the property. Similar to residential where you add a granny flat and do things like that. Um, there's just a lot more versatility in things you can do with commercial properties. That's a really interesting one. I used to do a bit of work where we'd um, look at some valuation components of the telecommunication spaces, so valuing leases and valuing um, airspace rights and things like that. And they can add a fair bit of revenue. We've come across a number that you know, twenty, thirty thousand dollars a year would be what they're paying for that roof space that effectively wasn't in use for anything else. Yeah. Um, and obviously, being a big telco, it's a fairly secure revenue stream. It's not someone you're battling to pay month by month. Uh, but airspace is an interesting one. So this is one that I've seen emerging more and more over the last few years where a number of companies are um, trading airspace rights, they're selling them, they're renting out airspace rights, even for floor space ratios. So if you've got airspace that's not used and you've actually got a higher floor space ratio you could utilise on your site but you don't want to redevelop it for whatever reason, you can actually sell or trade those airspace uh, rights of the floor space ratios in some council areas, probably more Sydney Metro, maybe not the back of, you know, Taree, but you know, Sydney Metro, you can trade that to a developer that can then sort of add that to their floor space ratio on their site. It does mean, however, you can't then go back and reuse it under that current scenario. But there are all sorts of things with signage and things you can do now with airspace. Is this an area that investors should really be looking into? Yeah, advertising space is a kind of the flavour of the month. Um, so everyone seems to be doing that and looking into that. You've got to make sure you get council permissions and things like that. But even in residential, you can do it. If you've, you've seen houses on the highways, they've got the big billboard out the front of their house. Um, so it's a nice little income stream. As long as it doesn't affect your tenant's business, 
um, or even the value of the property if you're looking to sell or refinance, things like that. Um, yeah, there, there's very good ways to make money. Absolutely. So thinking outside the box a bit. Um, Tuan, what are, what are your experiences with your either your portfolio or what you've seen with clients in terms of tips on ways to increase revenue on investment properties? Um, yeah, so my um, for myself personally, I've got a quite a diversified portfolio. Most of my uh, properties are in Sydney-based. Um, it's diversified with commercial and residential. Most of my uh, residential stuff is existing, uh, stuff that's 10 to 20 years old. Generally, uh, that man manages my unforeseen maintenance costs uh, that I have to incur, and it's not too old where I have to fix and have major renovations uh, required because I just don't have the time for it. So that sort of suits my portfolio better. And then I've also got a couple of commercial properties, and the reason for that is that I guess it's a balancing act of cash flow. So I've always owned the properties that uh, we, 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 we tenant ourselves in our business through trust, uh, so that makes us uh, just a little bit more better for gearing in future. Once we vacate the property and rent it out, it gives us really good positive cash flow, and that's something that we look. I, I myself look for, especially uh, not having the time and uh, and 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 uh, availability to go into development. These are the sort of things that I'm trying to diversify myself into. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, biggest challenges investors are facing for 2021. What are your thoughts on that? I think supply issues are uh, the most. Um, you know, we have a lot of people that I think uh, there's a lot of people out there that are ready to buy. Uh, but from my personal experience looking to buy, it's always a supply issue. Um, and, 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 and I think that's going to be the biggest challenge in 2021, finding good stock. Uh, people wanting to release good property to out of the market for others to buy. So I think that's the biggest concern. But I think uh, the, con the confidence is there. Um, just a matter of finding the right people to, to put on the market and, and find the right buyers. Yeah, fantastic. Steve, what do you think the biggest challenges will be this year for investors? For, for commercial, um, office space is obviously going to struggle with the, the working from home routine now. So um, I think it's going to be a very big year for industrial, um, but not so great for uh, retail and office space just from COVID. And that, that'll flow on for a couple of years. And then different locations, I think, are going to struggle. So CBD locations where, um, much like Tyne said, like there's going to be an oversupply of certain stock, um, that's going to keep prices down. So um, that that negative sentiment gets transferred into other markets as well. So it may affect different regions, even though they're not struggling. Yeah, that's interesting. Do you think that'll push pricing up in the industrial space, especially, I suppose, in areas like Sydney Metro and Melbourne Metro, where the invest there's, there's a certain type of investor will just go out and buy in the area because they know it. There's maybe not a lot of strategy around that, but they go out and they buy what's around the corner, um, maybe not as savvy on returns and the due diligence and pricing. Do you think those sort of areas might get this little pricing push because there'll be that extra demand? For, for industrial, 100%, I think it's probably going to be the biggest year for commercial growth in the industrial space. Um, and with, with lowering kind of yields in Sydney and Melbourne, people actually are looking for that cash flow to diversify their portfolio. Yeah, and, and I suppose as well that comes down to then investors being a little bit more open to investing in other areas, not just buying in the suburb they know because there's going to be a lot of that happening. It's about getting out of the areas that maybe has low yields and actually putting some strategy around it. There's just a lot more education as well with commercial. So two years ago, no one was talking about it. Now I'm, I'm very busy and constantly having people ask questions about it, even depreciation. They, they want to know how does, how does commercial work with all the cash flow and depreciation. So I, I think there's a lot more knowledge around the space now. Yeah, fantastic. So I'm going to ask this of both of you. I might start with Steve. Um, we see a lot of different strategies around investing in what we do from rent investing to flipping to you know all these buzzwords and some are good some are probably not so good some are probably just buzzwords um what in your experience Steve what are some of the better strategies you see investors implement and maybe what are some of the ones that you think aren't as solid they're just a bit of a buzzword 
I'm going to sort of sit on the fence here. It's It just depends what your actual goal is. If your goal is to flip a property and make a 5% profit on it, that's not a great strategy for 90% of people. But if you can do that 10 times a year, all of a sudden the numbers make sense. Whereas the average investor might look for a 10 or 20% return from flipping a property. Um, and then it's this ultimately comes down to your goals. So what are you, are you trying to build a passive income? Are you trying to build a net portfolio size? Are you trying to set up some properties for your kids? Are you looking at retirement? Uh, what's your income versus your risk profile versus your time frame? So there's, there's no right strategy. Um, any strategy, if it makes money, is a good strategy. Um, but it's just going to come down to the person, the individual, on a case-by-case basis. Okay, excellent. What about you, time? What have you seen? What, what do you think works and doesn't work? I have to agree. I mean, I've seen a bit of everything. I've seen land banking. I've seen uh, buy and hold, flipping homes, rent vesting. I've seen clients do that. And I think it comes down to circumstantial. If you've got the time, effort, and energy uh, in those t- type of scenarios, then definitely. Um, but for the most of the people that I sort of uh, work with, I think clientele-based, uh, rent vesting is a very common one, something that people are most, most you know, uh, comfortable with. They want to live in a place where, you know, they can't afford but not, can't afford, not, can't afford to buy um, and then spread their portfolio elsewhere and talk to people like Anna where there are places to buy that are affordable and have real potential for growth. Uh, rather than buying in local areas that you're comfortable with. I think people are becoming more educated about that now. And I think I'm finding our database alone, uh, people are shifting away from buying locally. They're buying in places that they're not really comfortable with. And uh, when that, when that's a great thing because it's uh, there's there's obviously more reward um, moving out of, outside of those areas you're comfortable with. Yeah, well, I heard some data this morning that um, Domain have just um, put out around rents in Sydney are down at 2013 levels. Mm-hmm. So that means effectively you can rent fairly cheaply in the scheme of things if you're paying back what we're paying in 2013 yeah. and then go out and put your money to work somewhere where it's going to work better for you. Definitely. And it's becoming more of a norm to buy interstate and different regions now as well. Like most young people now, they're not just buying Sydney and sitting on it for 20, 30 years. There's some education out there. There's no, there's no excuse to not look elsewhere because there's people that can help you and plenty of stuff online you can research. Yeah, absolutely. All right, I think that's um, that, that does it for today. It's been great having you, Twan. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Anna. Thank, Thank you, fun. Steve. And uh, that's another episode of The Property Experience. We hope that you enjoyed it and got some great information out of it. We'll be back soon. Bye for now. Thank you for joining us on another episode of The Property Experience. Stay tuned for more great content.